0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we'll be continuing our series on negative emissions. This episode is entitled, We'll Always Have Paris. So there are a few more points I want to emphasise in the discussion we've been having about negative emissions technologies in general. And the first one is to really dig into some of the consequences of trying to address climate change in this way in terms of the geopolitics. In our episode on carbon budgets, for example, we talked about the importance and the difficulty of trying to get a climate change solution that is fair, equitable, and just for everyone involved. You might think that the whole point of coming up with a carbon budget would be to do a sort of rationing and have a fixed amount of CO2 emissions that you have that would then be divided up between every nation, turning them into permits for a sort of cap-and-trade emission system, and then this way, given that there would be a finite number of permits... You would imagine that the price of these permits would reflect how much the market values emitting CO2, and the number of permits that you have could then be set in such a way that you would have effectively rationed carbon, and you would be sure that the global emissions would stay below your target for 2 degrees Celsius. But of course, for various different reasons, we've ended up with a more bottom-up approach with the Paris Agreement, where people are voluntarily setting their own contributions to the system. Of course, if you did have such a world where carbon rationing was effectively in place, perhaps negative emissions would fit into this system as a way of increasing the amount of permits that you had. And you could in fact see how maybe under such a system, negative emissions could become a profitable business because you'd be generating permits that you could sell to other people. If you could demonstrate that you as Nation X or Company Y had permanently captured and sequestered 100 million tonnes of CO2, you might be able to sell those permits to other nations and other places, other companies that don't have the same options as you, and therefore you'd have a financial incentive to build this industry. So this is the sort of technocratic market-based solution to climate change, but instead of course we don't have this sort of global system that the technocrats might want, because Essentially, too many nations and too many corporations would probably deem it politically unpalatable, and then we have ended up with a system that doesn't really do this at all. Now, the EU does have something a bit like this in its emissions trading scheme, but many have argued that its price is too low and too many permits have been given out, and for too many different reasons as well. But globally, getting something like this implemented has been a complete no-go, so instead we have the Paris Agreement. So an analogy for the Paris Agreement, it's a bit more like sharing a house with a big number of housemates, familiar to anyone who's been a student. We all know that the rent is due and to pay it everyone will need to chip in. People are still arguing about how much the rent actually is but there's some consensus number that we think we can aim for. But instead of dividing up the rent between us equally, we've each agreed to chip in a bit, which we will voluntarily determine ourselves in the hope that it will add up to the final rent. Only people are disputing over who owes more, because some of us have fancier jobs, some of us are richer, some of us have bigger rooms in the house, some of us have bought more of the furniture and the washing up liquid, etc. Some of us are promising to pay the rent by taking out credit card loans, while even when people have pledged a decent chunk of money, it's not clear how they're going to get hold of it. And of course, the richest housemate until recently denied that we even needed to pay rent, although as I recall this, he's due to be evicted. Throwing negative emissions into the mix adds a whole new question mark over the ideas of justice and fairness, though. For a start, if we imagine that large-scale negative emissions are possible, then who should pay for them, and who should deliver them? You could argue that, if the purpose of these NETs is to clean up our historical mess, we should clean up in proportion to how much we've each contributed. Well, if that's the case, you can look at the UK. In the carbon budgets episode, we pointed out that the UK is about 2.2% of the world's GDP about 1% of the world's population, and about 1% of the world's CO2 emissions today. But if you look back over history, because the Industrial Revolution happened here first, and because Britain historically depended on coal, we've emitted about 5% of the world's cumulative emissions historically. Because CO2 lingers on for centuries, you can therefore argue that we're responsible for about 5% of the world's climate problem, at least that that comes from CO2. So given that that is the case, should we deliver 5% of the world's negative emissions? Should countries aim to cancel out the effect that they've had? Is that necessarily fair? After all, climate change wasn't that well understood for most of the time that the UK was burning this huge amount of coal. The bulk of China's emissions came after this was understood as a problem. But you can see how this framing changes matters. If you look at the picture today, China does emit more CO2 than the US. But if you look historically, China's cumulative contribution to the problem is about 13% of emissions, compared to the US at 25%. So the differences in how you determine what's fair and just and what metric you use really, really matters geopolitically and in terms of who is going to end up paying for cleaning up this mess. And you can see there being some really thorny issues here in climate politics. Take this as an example. Let's say that the UK does very well and gets to net zero emissions by 2050. Other countries then would still be emitting CO2. We know that our global targets require the whole world to go net negative to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere on average. Models envision that negative emissions will partly cancel out remaining sources of carbon but will also be scrubbing historical CO2 from the atmosphere. So once the UK reaches its net zero target we would have to for the sake of the climate push the UK to be a net negative country in some way. But we expect negative emissions to be expensive. It would be really easy for politicians to frame this as the UK paying to clean up the mess that is still coming from other countries like, say, China, who haven't hit net zero yet, given that China's aim for net zero, if it does achieve its goal, would be 2060, 10 years after we had done it. And this is a huge part of the problem because, again, this is a global issue, but we make decisions within individual companies, we make decisions as individuals, we make decisions as nations, as polities, and the levels of international cooperation on this are quite low at the present time even under the Paris Agreement where it's still left as a matter for individual nations to set their own policy and there's no requirement to see who's going to actually pay for and bring up these negative emissions. And we know that tragically in my view foreign aid is one of the least popular things for British taxpayers who see it as their money going to clean up messes around the world when we have many problems unsolved here at home. So the question is Are countries really going to go net negative to the tune of billions of dollars if they aren't compensated for doing so? But the mechanisms for transferring who pays don't yet exist. This, of course, is a huge problem of climate diplomacy that accrues to all sorts of different things, whether it comes from transferring funds from some nations to other nations to help them decarbonise or to make sure that they don't invest in uh, coal and natural gas and so on. All of these things. The temptation to offshore different emissions uh, and the geopolitics of who is emitting what and who's attributed to emitting what, all of these things are extremely difficult. And in your fundamental technocratic model where you assume that each dollar that you spend can just happily flood around the world and go from different countries and different nations and so on and solve the problem where it's needed, you don't have these political divides that you have to consider. You know, it's interesting, even since writing this, there are a few different things that have come up in the news recently which relate to this. So, for example, the UK has all of these very ambitious climate targets, which we've talked about, um, some of the most ambitious in the world, despite the fact that many people would still say they're not enough. And yet we see that the UK is funding the development of liquid natural gas facilities in Mozambique. So UK money is funding these. They will help secure supplies of gas that will be burned in britain and the uk's government claims that funding this stuff in mozambique is somehow compatible with their paris agreement targets when it's not entirely clear how that is the case and similarly is the case for the new coal mine that is being developed in cumbria so there are some interesting points there and then of course there's the fact that the uk recently cut its foreign aid budget from 0.7 percent of gdp to 0.5 percent of gdp um There's a claim that this will be a temporary thing, but I think we all suspect that it will be permanent. It uh, comes on the heels of the Department for International Development being merged with the Foreign Office, which means that we no longer have a department that is solely devoted to foreign aid. And so you can see that actually we're moving into a world which is more nationalistic, uh, less forward-looking, less outward-looking, less global in nature, and therefore seeing these mechanisms of how carbon and how payments for solving this problem are going to be distributed around the world uh, is it seems that they're getting to be more difficult to do this than actually easier um, the way that things are going at the moment but of course this is before you even get into the problem of where you can actually deliver net negative emissions because you're going to need to do this in different places for many schemes the co2 has to be buried underground but there are only so many sites that are suitable to liquefy and inject the co2 and they're not necessarily matched up that well with where you would want to put your negative emissions. So for example, you might imagine a scenario where you have direct air capture, you'd have loads of these power plants out there, um, which would be direct air capture plants that would be taking in uh, electricity, maybe generated by solar panels, maybe generated by wind farms, scrubbing CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then piping it somewhere to bury it underground. Lots of the sites that are best for burying CO2 at the moment, they are sites that are in the North Sea. They are sites that were former oil and gas wells. Uh, They're in rock formations. You know, these places are not all over the world. And so there's a certain geographical element to this, a bit like trying to site a new geothermal power station, for example, or a new wind farm. There's only so many places where it makes economic sense to do it. And so again, you're going to have to think about how you're going to cross boundaries with those sort of projects and how you're going to ensure that you are matching up well with where you want to put your negative emissions, the thing that actually sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere, and where you want to store it long term. So you've got pipelines. If the infrastructure is going to work, you'll need pipelines that will pump CO2 to these locations. Perhaps in some cases they could be almost the same story of these pipelines that are currently pumping fossil fuels around the world. So as with any pipeline, you have these local questions about whether people want whacking great pipes across their territory. Many of the best locations to pump CO2 into are places where oil and gas was historically recovered, we're talking about the North Sea here, so this requires jurisdictions to switch from being fossil fuel producers to negative emissions pumpers. Some people would say that this is good because the fossil fuel industry can help you to deliver negative emissions, but are they going to want to do that? Are the incentives going to be there for them to do that? Are the incentives going to be to continue extracting carbon from the earth and burning it? The other major issue here is one of how you actually deliver the negative emissions. Many of the technologies that we're talking about here require huge areas of land. This is true, for example, of bioenergy, biochar, and so on, where you effectively use plants to capture the CO2 and then bury them in some form or another. So there have been studies that have suggested if you look at a country like the UK, again, uh, sorry for keep using it as an example, but we're a small country, Um, And we don't have that much landmass per person here, but we have quite a lot of CO2 emissions, uh, although they've fallen in recent years. And for us to capture uh, the negative emissions that the Committee on Climate Change thinks we will need to to get to net zero by 2050, we can only get a third of those domestically. So we can't only use our own landmass and planting forests and planting bioenergy crops and so on to actually deliver the negative emissions that we think we need to get to net zero and that would be a big problem. This follows globally, of course. Some countries are more capable of growing big amounts of biofuel crops than others. So if we use this bioenergy with CCS to deliver negative emissions at scale, that global negative emissions burden of growing those crops at least is disproportionately going to fall on some countries where you can actually grow them. If you do it with direct air capture instead, you need power for those plants, perhaps the burden would fall on countries that are rich in renewable resources. And these countries may not be the same as the nations that are emitting the most CO2 or historically responsible for the most emissions. It's not clear who's going to bear the capital costs for building these things in the first place, you know. Again, you need some mechanism where countries will pay each other or do projects within each other's territory for cleaning up each other's mess, in many ways like running the fossil fuel industry, in reverse. And this in turn has its own problems and its own geopolitical issues and its own difficulties that can potentially arise. And you can easily see how this might end up with a very unjust situation where masses of agricultural land in some nations are being devoted to burying the emissions from other nations rather than feeding the people who live in that country. Or indeed, as we'll talk about later with Bex in the episode on biofuel with carbon capture storage, there are pressures that will come into on land and water and fertilizers and so on that are required to grow these crops, which could drive up food prices locally and drive up land prices locally. And again, you come to this issue with these polities that aren't (laughs) in these global visions for how we're going to tackle this problem, they aren't considered quite as much. For something like this to work, for these arrangements to stand and keep going for the decades that they would need to keep going, all of this is going to require a great deal of global coordination and cooperation, trust, collaboration, partnership, agreement amongst all nations on how to tackle the problem, and a desire to solve these global problems collectively but you question whether we're seeing a world that is evolving that way right now. And of course, you also question whether as climate change starts to bite and these negative impacts and transformations that must take place start to do so, are we going to see that cooperation getting better or worse? And of course, when we're talking about equity and justice, let's be frank here about what negative emissions and the promise that we can solve at least part of our problem with negative emissions is doing. If you're using them to clean up your historical mess, you're shifting the burden from today's emissions onto future generations, or at the very least to people who will be paying for them in the next few decades. So not only are you, with climate change, also outsourcing the costs and the penalties and the price to be paid in terms of climate change damages to the future, to future people, to future generations, and also disproportionately to poorer nations from the wealthier nations in the global north. But now you're also asking them to pay for the cleanup effort as well. So here we go, kids. I'm going to get back on the hobby horse that you've heard me ride many a time and many different themes of this show. This is, of course, part of the fundamental problem with an approach to fixing climate change that simply asks you to minimize the cost of doing so with some economic model. Because the great simplification, the great lie there that lies under these economic models is that all dollars are fungible. They can basically be traded equivalently with each other, more or less. So it doesn't matter if your actions help some people and harm others. It doesn't matter if your actions make profit for people alive today but impose costs on people in the future. It doesn't matter if your actions benefit one nation and impose costs on another. You imagine a fantasy world where instead all of these dollars are in one big pot, and it doesn't really matter who's paying for it and who's suffering because there's going to be some transfer mechanism that makes sure everyone is made whole again. But these are the fundamental unsolved questions when it comes to climate politics. Sure, you might have some concept of a discount rate, which will mean that dollars spent today are worth more than dollars in the future. But this implicitly embeds the idea that the economy will keep growing forever, or that certain technologies will get cheaper over time, which is certainly not necessarily the case, particularly if they're not deployed now. We've seen that the learning rate of technologies, technologies don't just get cheaper over time because time has passed since they were first invented. They have to be deployed at scale for those costs to come down. And in fact, it's a closer correlation between how much you've deployed the technology and therefore how much you've learned from that and how much the industry has been able to benefit from economies of scale versus a question of how much time you've had. that That's a much weaker correlation with the price and the cost of doing these things. But if you have these discount rates in place, that actually means that your models will prefer to shove those costs into the future. But of course, then they won't be borne by the same people. They could be borne by your grandchildren and your children and so forth. So there's a real irony here, actually, when it comes to talking about deficit spending, because some people who don't understand how deficits work in terms of government deficits for monetarily sovereign countries, and if you want more on this, go back and listen to our episodes on modern monetary theory, They will argue that by incurring debts now, uh, by government spending, you are leaving some sort of burden for your children. And of course, that's not actually the case because that's not how deficits work. But actually, by not investing in clean tech now, by not investing in renewables and electrification now, you are forcing the solution to climate change to either be you have to endure more and more damages from climate change because the world will heat up, or you have to do more and more negative emissions to cancel out are in action today. And so the real cost is in not spending. In not spending, you are imposing greater costs on those future generations. So the next time you hear someone misleadingly claim that you can't deficit spend because you're leaving your children or grandchildren with some great legacy that they'll have to pay off eventually, the the legacy that we're leaving our children and grandchildren, and in my case, the me of future years, um, th- that is going to be the cost of either dealing with climate change or trying to cancel out some of the emissions that we're doing today. That's the cost that's being shoved off into the future. Here, sure, you know, economists will argue that you could make this work if you had some good legal systems of compensation. If people were, say, investing funds today that enabled negative emissions to occur in the future, if there was a scheme where people paid compensation for imposing climate damages onto other nations or future generations to clean up the mess or endure the damage, but we know that there's, in reality, a myriad problems with trying to do this. For a start, we know that people will disagree about what the damages actually are and how to calculate them. This is something that's called the social cost of carbon in the literature, is the idea of how much damage you do by emitting a ton of carbon dioxide. And the estimates for this thing vary from like $15 to thousands of dollars, depending on how you consider it. Not only that, but it also doesn't make sense because it's path dependent, right? The The cost of the environment emitting a ton of carbon now is not just the same as the discounted cost for emitting a ton of carbon in the future, because it depends how much carbon you emit in total to determine how much warming you get. So for example, if you're emitting a tonne of carbon on a trajectory that eventually ends with less than two degrees of warming, that's going to cause a different amount of damage to a tonne that is going to result in four degrees of warming at the end of the day, and to different people, to different nations and to different groups of people. So there's huge problems with this as a concept. People disagree about the cost and effectiveness of the negative emissions too. People will disagree about who needs to pay who and how much. People will disagree about the costs imposed by climate change things that have been mostly scientific questions, like how much of an extreme weather event you can attribute to climate change, these things will suddenly become legal and economic and financial questions if this is done. And, you know, beyond disputes over what value of the damage that's been caused, or what the value of the negative emissions are, people might not even want to say it can be quantified. I mean, a simple obvious example Let's say that a climate change-induced disaster destroys most of the agricultural output of a country for a year. It, It ruins a harvest season. It causes a famine. That is unfortunately very feasible. Are you really going to tell me that the rich nations can just pay off that country, the equivalent dollar value of their crops, and everything will be fine? Or what about if people die waiting for that money and finance to go through and for the cost to be calculated? All of these would make perfectly valuable objections to a scheme in the world run by economists that sought to make these financial transfers to compensate for the uneven burdens of damages of climate change and the uneven burdens of cleaning up our historical mess. But the even more important point to object to this is that there simply is no such scheme. This is not the flaws with some existing scheme. There are no mechanisms for making these transfers that will compensate for the unequal and unjust damages. And the way we're doing climate policy at the moment the weakness of our international institutions mean that there's no guarantee that countries will sign up to it at all. This is, after all, among the weakest areas in the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement acknowledges that loss and damage from climate change should be avoided and minimised, but it explicitly says that, quote, this does not provide a basis for any liability or compensation. The climate change agreements include the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage. But there's no real financial muscle backing that up that is actually paying for and compensating for losses and damages. Every time there are climate negotiations, poorer and more vulnerable nations to the impacts of climate change try to ask for some compensation for the losses and damages that they're suffering and will suffer under climate change. But it is always blocked by wealthier countries, who are in a very real sense, by their disproportionate consumption of fossil fuels, benefiting off the very things that are causing those damages. Heck, even though the cheapest and most effective way to really head off the worst-case climate change scenarios is to fund mitigation efforts in poor countries, you know, we're talking about the difference here between the next few billion people getting electricity, getting it from coal or solar, basically, the world's wealthiest nations are still falling short on their targets in funding mitigation and adaptation. In 2009, wealthy nations set a goal of $100 billion to be raised annually by the world's wealthiest nations and put into a fund for adaptation and mitigation of climate change in poorer countries. Before COVID-19, they were getting a little closer to the target. In 2017, there was £71 in aid compared to £58 in 2016. We've already seen that the UK has reduced its overseas aid budget, and it wouldn't surprise me if other countries follow suit. And given that we can't reach the targets for these transfers that we're trying to do to actually address the problem somewhat in every nation, let alone on the basis of this fairness and justice. To argue that everyone will just compensate each other for the damages of climate change and the costs of the negative emissions seems such a long way from the current reality of geopolitics, a reality that is relentlessly and happily ignored by the models. The point here is that when we do this kind of integrated assessment modelling, we can get sucked into these futures that are apparently very bloodless, very technocratic, It makes sense to do this much negative emissions because that minimises the global cost. But the decisions you make about what's feasible and what isn't, or the priorities that you give the model when you run it, they have real-world consequences if people choose to take your scenario as what should or must happen. Scenarios that rely on masses of negative emissions at the end of the century, after all, essentially allow fossil fuel companies to make profits in the short term by continuing to extract and sell their damaging product and then relying on someone else to come along and clean up the mess later. And it will come as no surprise to you that many of the fossil fuel companies, when they produce their own scenarios, like Shell does, like others do, they also produce scenarios that look like this. And in most of these scenarios, in most of the plans that the fossil fuel companies have, believe me, their aim is to maximise their short-term profit. I mean, this is what we tell companies that they have to do, isn't it? That they have to maximise their profit, that they are actually under an obligation to their shareholders to do so. And they would be in breach of that if they didn't do things that they thought would maximize their profit. So for them, that is extract as much fossil fuel from the ground and burn it as you possibly can, sell it while they're getting as good. And that is what they're going to do. Now, obviously, these scenarios and this approach isn't the only way that we could do it. We could, for example, immediately take over the fossil fuel companies and, instead of running them for profit, run them only for as long as we need in order to transition away from fossil fuels. We could genuinely use that infrastructure to build carbon capture and storage and negative emissions. We could focus much, much more on near-term sharp cuts to emissions, rather than allowing ourselves to believe that we still have time to reach our goals because we're borrowing all of this carbon from the end of the century. Now, the thing is, You have to understand that the reason that this is important to emphasise as a future where we're dreaming of this massive negative emissions industry is to have it as a point of comparison. People might find it inconceivable that we should say that we're going to ban new fossil fuel cars or new gas boilers and phase them out from being sold over the next five ten years. People might say that it places an intolerable burden on those industries, the industries of heat, the industries of transport, that it will cost too much. it's too impractical. People might say that it would be unfair to phase out, say, coal-fired power plants before the end of their natural life, because this would impose costs on the people who paid for them, who wouldn't get all of the money that they otherwise would. But you have to compare the cost of doing these things to the cost of this huge negative emissions effort, and the damage of not hitting our climate change targets. There's always going to be some level of unfairness, no matter how you try to solve the problem. So why is it so unreasonable to be unfair to the fossil fuel companies who are causing the problem, and so reasonable to dump a massive burden on developing countries, agricultural sectors that have to do lots of this bioenergy stuff, and future people? So you have to see that the assumptions that go into these models, about things like how much negative emissions are feasible, how quickly we can scale them up, how quickly we can decarbonise and replace fossil fuel infrastructure with renewables, These might feel like they're just technocratic assumptions, like they're just technical points, like they're just parameters that we can try and figure out and estimate in our model. But of course they are intensely political, because they determine much of who bears the cost of what we're doing, and who gets to benefit. And that is the essence of what politics is. In describing these scenarios, where we use massive scale-up of negative emissions on the order of billions of tonnes to meet the Paris Agreement targets, I've often called them mainstream climate scenarios, or used some equivalent phrasing to that. The reason for that is that they appear in the IPCC reports, and that there are also scenarios and scenarios. Because, as I've said, there are many different ways to skin the cat of climate mitigation. You can try to look for alternative solutions which minimise your dependence on negative emissions. It might turn out to be more expensive, but you're not relying on this technology, which may be very difficult to deploy at scale. The result is that you have to cut emissions much faster in the short term to achieve the same target, since you can't make up for them later. One example of a scenario that does this was published in a paper by Grubler et al. back in 2018. This paper and this emission scenario can meet the more stringent Paris Agreement goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, and it does so without using any CCS or negative emissions technologies apart from some afforestation in some regions. But in order to do this, in order to hit the Paris target, it's necessary to reduce our final global energy demand by around 40% by 2050. This is why the model is referred to as the low energy demand or LED scenario. So to give you an idea of what a sudden reversal this would be, our primary energy consumption, so the amount of total energy that comes into our energy system from fossil fuels, from solar, from nuclear, from everything, that's increased by 66% in the last 30 years. In the 30 years before that, it more than doubled. This trend would need to stop and reverse over the next 30 years to meet this LED scenario. Now, there are some trends that will help us here. As things get more and more electrified and renewable, our energy use will likely decrease anyway, because electrified appliances are more efficient, they use less energy, and they produce less waste than ones that burn fossil fuels. In 2050, in the LED scenario, nearly half of the world's energy use is in the form of electricity, compared to 15% today. And as we cover elsewhere in Climate 201, there is a general trend for technologies to get more energy efficient over time but this can often be offset by economic growth. In the LED scenario, there's still considerable growth in poorer countries, which start to demand more in the way of transport, food, industrial and consumer goods, and so on. The amount of consumer goods in these nations triples by 2050 under this scenario, and the passenger miles that they drive more than doubles, but this is offset by electrification and greater efficiency elsewhere. Grubler et al, they outline some ways by which the world in 2050 would look different under this scenario, which doesn't need negative emissions, but does involve radical changes to how we live our lives. There would be fewer vehicles. In the global north, the number of cars would halve. This is enabled by better public transport, more car sharing, and more use of the same vehicles. In many cases, instead of owning vehicles, they expect people to rent them as a service instead. Another way in which things would be more efficient is through device convergence, The idea being that you have a TV, a computer, a telephone, a GPS, a camera, a music player, a radio, etc. That's what you used to have in the old days. Now you just have one smartphone that can fulfill all of those functions. Another thing that would have to happen is that devices are built to last longer, so that fewer need to be constructed. And we would learn to use 20% less material in our industrial outputs. So there's some interesting points here. You can see that some of this is going to happen and is happening in terms of trends. So for example, the trend they point to in terms of device convergence. Yes, it's true that we can do many of the functions that used to require separate devices on a smartphone nowadays, but many of those other devices like TVs, telephones, and so on still exist and are still being sold. You can see that there is a tendency towards a rental economy as things get harder and harder to own and more and more financiers are interested in extracting rent out of people who would rent cars for a small amount of time as opposed to actually owning them. But of course car sales are also increasing so there's a competition here between these two arms of capital that are trying to do different things and sell different things and extract different rents. Building devices to last longer so that fewer need to be constructed. Well that would be great, but that would require regulation to ensure that devices have a long-term warranty. We've seen instead in terms of Apple's latest iPhone that people prefer devices to be built and used for a couple of years and then replaced by new ones because it guarantees them this constant revenue stream. So building devices to last longer so that we need to construct fewer and use less material, that's something that would cut against the grain of what's going on at the moment and would probably require regulations to achieve. Other things that happen in the Grubler scenario, well, wind, and especially solar, essentially take over from oil and gas as the main fuels that drive our economies. But above all, there is really a combination of much, much more energy efficiency in how the products we use are made. We would have stringent standards that would treat energy as the precious resource that it is, and also in how we ultimately use those final products. These are the things that allow us to decarbonize much more rapidly. You can see why, too. Renewable power has been growing rapidly over the last few years, and thank goodness because it's finally illustrating some cause for optimism in the middle of the climate mess. But so far that growth has actually not had a huge impact on emissions directly because it's been offset by the fact that our energy demand is also growing. In a world where our demand for energy is actually shrinking because we're using it more efficiently, deploying renewables eats into our fossil fuel use much more quickly than in a world where it's just offsetting the increased demand for energy that we have. Now, Am I saying that this low energy demand scenario, this LED scenario, is going to happen? No, not really. I'm just saying that this kind of thing illustrates that it's possible, or it might be possible, to achieve our climate change goals still, without relying on massive negative emissions, if you assume that we can decarbonise more quickly and reduce our demand for energy in this sort of way. The point is that when you look at these models, and when you try and figure out how these scenarios are going to work, You can make alternative sets of assumptions about what is feasible and what is not feasible. If you drop the assumption that the economy grows, you have different things going on. If you drop the assumption that you can get to these negative emissions, then you'll come up with different scenarios. The cost that you're willing to pay to actually get and hit this target is going to be different in all of these different cases. If you think technologies will develop faster, that'll do something. If you think they'll develop slower and be harder to implement, That will do something else to the type of scenarios that are considered feasible. Someone might look at the world illustrated by the LED scenario and say that it's just not going to happen, not when everyone has been keen to maximise their profits and produce as much as possible, to manufacture things that become obsolete in a year or two, and to relentlessly drive increasing consumption and therefore increasing ownership of consumer goods. But you might equally say that the world where we consume like crazy and then use negative emissions to cancel it all out is just as unfeasible. One point the authors of the LED scenario make is that it has a lot of co-benefits for other things, like the UN Sustainable Development Goals. In this scenario, people have more food, on average. Forest cover increases. Health benefits arise from reduced air pollution, and so on. In many ways, it might be a better world for most of us, but for some people, it will be a less profitable one. The point is that there are ways of making the numbers add up without masses of negative emissions still. Although, just to give you an idea of how difficult this is, the paper has a carbon budget from 2020 of 320 gigatons of CO2. And in the year 2020, we ate up 10% of that budget, even with the COVID-19 global recession and economic shock. But to get to scenarios that don't need masses of negative emissions, you need to make different assumptions about what's possible. And a more radical, more rapid transformation of the energy system is absolutely necessary. When you decide that it's easier and more feasible to suck billions of tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere in 2100, than it will be to reduce our energy demand today, or to end fossil fuel extraction very rapidly, or to insist that they all fit carbon capture onto the end of their fossil fuel burning power plants. You are of course making a political choice. It might be one based on science and logic and evidence and your understanding of how these huge energy systems and economies work and how they can be turned around, but it is a choice about who pays, about what's feasible, about what's going to happen. Maybe both scenarios are, quote-unquote, impossible or incredibly unlikely. But the ones that you choose to focus on and aim for, that's a very important political choice. Seeing scenarios like this, the LED scenario where global energy demand actually falls by 2050, makes me wonder what climate politics and policy would look like if these negative emissions technologies weren't even considered as an option. In that case, these modelers would have to tell policymakers that the only way to achieve the Paris goals would involve this very rapid energy transition, that we'd have to share more things, that we'd have to build products that would last longer, that we'd have to find ways to become radically efficient with how we use things so that our energy demand would fall, even as the global south began to catch up with the global north and poorer countries got richer. I wonder what would happen if, for example, they took this for granted, that By 2050, we'll need to have half as many cars on the road. Would the policy makers turn around and say, "Okay, these goals are impossible, we failed? Or would they actually redouble their efforts towards things that would make a tangible difference to reduce our emissions? All of this gets into a thorny debate, which is about the potential of technology, and especially negative emissions technologies, to create an atmosphere of mitigation deterrence. The idea being... If people believe these technologies will be available in the future, or that they might even be cheaper or politically easier to deploy in the future, then they won't bother making the hard decisions or policy choices or investment that they should be making now. Now, people argue endlessly about this because it's a little bit difficult to prove without getting inside the heads of the people who are making the policy. Are they not acting on climate change because they believe technology or negative emissions will come along and save us soon? Or are they not acting for other reasons? For example they don't care or they believe that it would be politically unpopular to make these choices and they're waiting for the next election or they rely on donations from fossil fuel interests or whatever it may be an example of this which shows you that there is an interest in producing this information that will allow people to say that the problem can be solved in these technological ways there was a recent very flawed paper that came out and said basically all you needed to do to address climate change was to plant many, many trees. The paper was immediately blown up, I've discussed it in other episodes, but they made several huge errors that just made the conclusions invalid. One of them was obvious to me, a lowly grad student, just from reading the abstract. They had worked out that the potential for negative emissions from trees, but hadn't included the fact that if you use trees to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, CO2 will outgas from the oceans into the atmosphere, and you also need to remove that. Basically, when we emit CO2 today, half goes into the ocean and half into the atmosphere. When you remove it, you have to do the same thing in reverse. So if you emit a billion tonnes of CO2 today, you need to take a billion tonnes out to reverse that effect completely. You can't rely on the fact that half a billion tonnes will stay in the ocean because it doesn't. But this was ignored by the paper, so they were off by a factor of two just from that. And they were wrong in about a dozen other ways too. The paper was eventually politely trashed by the scientific community, although somehow made it through peer review, when a lot of my papers have not. But anyway, this paper, which promised that tree planting could be the main solution, led to a trillion trees initiative, which Trump supported. Basically, his only vaguely climate-related policy was to plant these trillion trees. Now, I've covered elsewhere, at length, how our promises on how much afforestation we're going to do tend not to be met at all, and tend to be a load of rubbish, so I won't get into that here. The question is, though, was this mitigation deterrence? Was the fact that they produced this paper about the trillion trees, was that part of what influenced Trump to act less urgently on climate because he thought that trees could solve it? Or did he and his voters just not think it was a real problem? It's hard to say, isn't it? And similarly, I don't know to what extent politicians really know about negative emissions and our dependence on it, or factor it into their thinking. But I do think that the mitigation deterrence hypothesis has a lot of lex, because without this appeal to large-scale negative emissions at the end of the century, and without creating these scenarios which allow us to talk about reducing CO2 emissions a bit more slowly, people would probably be telling politicians that we needed much, much faster action to have any hope of achieving the Paris Agreement targets. And it's hard to argue that that wouldn't change their policies. Kevin Anderson, a climate scientist who has long been an advocate of a much more urgent climate policies and efforts to reduce our energy demand, and has consequently been a harsh critic of the IPCC and the mainstream of climate change negotiations, has described the situation by saying that thinly veiled techno-utopias now shore up the Paris Agreement. In the next episode, I'm going to talk more about the history of this mitigation deterrence. I'm going to talk about the technological promises that we've made about how we're going to fix climate change and the shifting goalposts in terms of our targets that have shown up as a result. And that will contextualise this story of negative emissions technologies in a much more detailed way that I hope will be of interest to you. In many ways, it's a potted history of climate policy and climate politics through the lens of these technical promises, uh, inspired by a very good paper done by Duncan McLaren of the University of Lancaster. So that's going to be the next episode in the series. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you will find the comments section. You will find the contact form where you can get in touch with us. Uh, Please do get in touch with us via that contact form. I try to respond to all of the emails that people send, and I really, really enjoy any comments, questions, concerns, clarification, feedback, ways that I can improve the show. All of this stuff can help me make it better, and I would appreciate hearing any of that from you. There are plenty of other ways you can help out the show if you like what we're doing here. On the website, on physicspodcast.com, you'll find links to the Patreon, thanks to those of you who have subscribed already. There, as I speak this, you can get 16 early episodes of the show. Uh, I don't know how many that will be by the time this episode comes out, but you can certainly get early episodes released there before they come out on the main feed. You can donate to us one time if you don't want to subscribe to the Patreon, there are PayPal links on the website as well. You can get in touch with us on social media, PhysicsPod, and you can promote the show there if you have social media that you would like People to hear about. I think the main thing that anyone can do to help with this show is to tell other people who might be interested in these subjects, who might learn something, or who might be interested to find out more about climate change, or any of the people that we've interviewed, to please listen to the episodes. We rely on word of mouth to get the word out. Uh, We don't have celebrity friends, uh, we just have you. So if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do tell other people to listen. That is the end of the set of plugs that I'm doing today. Until next time, then, please do. Take care.